You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Good morning! How are you? <laughs> I hear smatterings of and woo. I think a lot of us are quiet. I wonder how many people are feeling the season of stress, finals, group projects, holidays, family stuff coming up, still on Thanksgiving break. Are you guys feeling that? I am too. Um, just to do a disclaimer, I feel like I went on Thanksgiving break and then I'm not quite back yet. So I'm just going to like fully come back in January or something. But it's good to be together with you guys. It really is. I love um, our church family and I love getting to worship with you guys. And that's probably the saddest thing about breaks is that we're not together. Um, yeah, I'm tired. I think you guys are tired too. I think life feels busy, can feel chaotic. Um, so instead of doing some deep theology stretching, we're going to just do some fun puzzles like this first one. Can anybody find Waldo? Shout it out if you see it. Bottom. All right, you can you can uh, do the next slide. Right there at the very bottom. All right, let's do the next the next puzzle. <laughs> All right, I'm not going to make you find Waldo in this, but isn't this kind of how life feels sometimes? It feels like this for me in this season. Um, has looking for God in your life, particularly when you're busy, ever felt like doing? A Where's Waldo puzzle. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, that's connecting with. Great. Okay, good. Glad that landed. All right, has God ever felt... We can take that down because y'all are going to be looking at that the whole time. <laughs> Which I guess would be fine. Whatever. All right, has God ever felt silent to you? Maybe he's felt far away from you. Or maybe he actually feels like really close to you personally, but really far from a specific situation or challenge um, that you're going through. Or maybe, I mean, this happens to me all the time, where I'm sitting with somebody else and I'm listening to them and I can just see God all over the place in their life. Like, oh, he's here, he's here, he's here. But like in my own life, I'm like, "Mm." it's kind of like the puzzle. I'm not sure quite what he's doing. Have you ever felt just on your own spiritually? Or maybe been tempted to believe that if God is um, silent in your life, that you're being punished for sin in your life or something that you did wrong. Or maybe if you were a, a better Christian, right? Like if you had been doing those Bible readings every single morning, like you said you're going to, that God wouldn't feel so far away or quiet in an area that you're asking for help in. Maybe you'd feel more connected. But sometimes God just feels kind of quiet. Sometimes he just seems silent or distant. Sometimes there's not an immediate answer. See, unlike when we read stories in the Bible, we don't have the context and a narrator telling us what's going on. We just have our life, right? 
for me, I think a lot of times I can believe God cares, but I'm not exactly sure what he's doing right now. This happens to me all the time. Like long-term, um, it happened to me with singleness, where God just felt so silent, like for a decade, right? I'm just pouring out my heart and desires, and he's just, he's just silent on that issue. Or um, in the short term, maybe it's when I get so like fixated on my to-do list and um, what I want to accomplish and um, getting stuff done, and the, the value that I feel from that, God can feel distant or quiet. Or I can ask, well, what are you doing? But I'm too busy focusing on what I'm doing. Uh, this semester, we've been talking about being exile. In fact, the series that we're in is on the Sermon on the Mount. It's called Your Guide to Exile. We're doing that all year long. Um, and we've been talking about this idea of that we're in exile. We feel misplaced, maybe. We feel separated in our culture, here on campus, and just life right now. But this isn't a new thing. Like, this isn't just us. This is the story of God's people, sadly, kind of almost from the beginning, right? This is in the Bible all over the place. So God has creation, and and everything is good, and then sin enters the picture, and, and exile enters the picture. We don't quite feel at home where we feel separate. We see this so blaringly with just the story of God's narrative with the Jewish people, right? The chosen people. And this is primarily in the Old Testament where we see um, this idea of the people being exiled and waiting to be drawn back again. So in that in that section of the Bible, so it starts like in Genesis, it starts, um, the first few books are about the history of the people and setting stuff up and the law. And then a lot of the rest of the Old Testament is about this uh, idea of exile. And there's one specific story in that that I just totally love. I mean, I love the Old Testament actually a ton. And um, I think we wanted to spend a little bit of time in the Old Testament this week because we've been doing so much about the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament. If you don't, if you haven't read parts of the Old Testament, um, I would encourage you to do it. There's some crazy, fun interesting, hilarious stories. And we're going to talk about one today in the story of Esther. Um, her, her book sits sort of in this exile period. In fact, the Israelites are in a diaspora. That just simply means scattering seed. It's when the Israelites are not at home within themselves in Israel. They're sort of living through all the different countries around them. And um, the Israelites have been captured by Babylon, and then, the, then they've been captured by Persia. And that's the time period that we're sitting in with this book um, and Persia, the, the empire is a big deal, right? Like, it's the biggest power at this time. They pretty much are in charge of everything except maybe Greece. There's some, they want Greece. There's some tension going on there. Um, but it's, it's sort of a big deal. And the Jews, again, are exiled. They're not necessarily enslaved at this point, but they're exiled within the culture of the Persians. They've chosen to assimilate us to assimilate into that culture by choice. And um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's easy, though. I think similar to us, where we can still feel exiled in our in our culture right now. So I love Esther because it's just beautifully written. So I was an English teacher before I came on staff. And so I can, if you like that sort of thing, you can totally geek out on the story of Esther because it's... Um, 
it's it, it has a lot of plot and narrative that's like really enticing and exciting but the writing is really amazing too it actually has this thing called a chiastic structure where if you take the story and kind of fold it in half everything mirrors each other like the big events and it feels so designed and so well written and so composed right um it's really exciting to see god in that story but the interesting interesting thing about Esther is some people think, where is God in that story? Because Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned. Not once. His name is not in there. Which is just kind of weird for the Bible, right? But it, it connects with me. Because just like that Where's Waldo puzzle, I feel like Esther is a puzzle of continually looking for God. Where he's not necessarily obvious or stated. So let's dive into the story a little bit. Um, If you have your Bibles, feel free to open it up and and follow along. We're going to do a little bit of storytelling here. There's not going to, there's not like a specific passage that we're exegeting or something like that that's going to be up on the screen. So we're mostly going to walk through the story um, because I just think it's fascinating and good and it has things um, for me every time I read it and I think for the season of life that we're in where we're maybe stressed out, where God feels a little more distant or quiet. All right, so as as we go through the story, and I'm just going to kind of do a quick retelling. I'm not going to do it full justice, which makes me sad about, but I would encourage you to study it on your own. If you're interested in in learning more about it, I would love, I have like a 10-week Bible study on Esther that I just love, and I would do it with you if you want want to. Um, But as we kind of go through the story really quickly and kind of hit some of the, the high points of it, um, I'd like you to keep in mind this idea of exile, of waiting, and of looking. All right? Okay. Let's jump in. So, once upon a time, right, there was a king named Xerxes. And there's two things that you need to remember about Xerxes is that he is pretty much incompetent in a lot of ways. And he loves to party. He loves it. Like, there's parties and feasts and stuff all through this book. And, uh, I mean, it's extravagant partying. Like, the book opens, and there's a party that he's been throwing that's been going on for 180 days. And at the end of that, they're like, hmm, what should we do now? I know, let's do another party, and we're going to party for seven more days. So it's super, super, super extravagant. Think marble and gold. Like, this palace is beautiful. There's wine flowing that whole time. Much of this time, they are just completely drunk, which adds to some of the, like, what? And the hilarity of the, of the book. Um, so we open up, and King's, this party's been going on. King Xerxes is with his guys. They're not in their right minds, necessarily. And uh, he says, okay, you know what would be fun to do right now that we've been doing this so long? I'm going to get the queen out here, and I want you all to just, like, look at her and admire her. So Queen Vashti, come on out. And so these guys can look at you. And she says, no. He refuses to come. Um, Which does not make King Xerxes very happy at all. In fact, it says he burns with anger. Right? Um, And so she won't come. I can totally sympathize why she wouldn't. So he asks his wise men that are around him, quotes on the wise, like, what should I do? right? The queen has not obeyed me. What do I do? So these guys come up with a plan that they think, oh, okay, this is just going to be the best punishment ever. Here's what you should do. You should banish her from coming into your presence. 
sort of what she already did, right? Like, all right, keep in mind there's been partying for like 200 days leading up to this. Um, And so not only does he say, okay, this is a good idea to do to the queen. I'm going to get her under control. But he makes this declaration. He sends it out to all of the land in all the everybody's different languages and whatnot and says, guys, control your ladies. Be the men of your household and like get it together. So these guys get this um, out of nowhere, a lot of these husbands. And this is just so ironic and funny to me because it's, you know, the one thing that she didn't do is her punishment. Also, the one thing that he couldn't do is keep control of his household is what he's like mandating all of these men do in their lives. So that's a, that's a little uh, snippet of what King Xerxes is like. So that's the end of chapter one. Chapter two opens up, and it's about four years later. And it says that King Xerxes remembers Vashti, right, all of a sudden. And he says, I'm kind of lonely, and maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Things aren't going so well in the lands that we're doing war in and trying to conquer. So I know, let's have a beauty pageant, and I'll pick a new queen. So... Everybody around him says, that's a great idea. Let's do a beauty pageant. So two new characters walk into the story at this point, and it's uh, Mordecai, who is a semi-prominent Jewish leader um, in the in the community, and then his orphaned cousin, Esther, okay? And she gets picked because she's one of the, the ladies of the land to go to the castle to try out to become queen, and um, so she goes, and there's intense treatments, and 12 months of, like, beauty treatments and training and all of these things. And it's all leading up to each of these girls gets one night that they get to go have their one-on-one time with the king, and then he'll decide who he likes. All right, so that happens with Esther. Um, she uh, She is in the palace, and she has found favor with the guards. The Bible tells us this as the story goes. It says that um, she's sort of kind of become a favorite of the people that Xerxes has surrounded himself, like the guards and eunuchs and stuff. And so they they help her out. They give her advice, whatever. Um, And she goes to her night with the king, and she gets chosen. Surprise, surprise. So she becomes queen, they have a big banquet, everything is fabulous, and that's where the Cinderella story ends, right? The other thing that I like, I love fairy tales and stories and stuff like that, and so the other thing I like about Esther is it's like, okay, what happens after Cinderella, after like they lived happily ever after, did they? Um, So that's sort of where the next chapter goes. But the thing that's important to remember in all of this is Esther is Jewish, and Mordecai has asked her and and instructed her to keep that quiet. It's a secret because they've assimilated into the land. She's not Persian. It would sort of be a big deal if the queen found out that she was Jewish and not Persian. So she has a a secret identity. Um, Talk about exiled, feeling separated. So um, to end out chapter two, Mordecai, he just happens to overhear these guards at the gate where he sort of hangs out. And they are planning an assassination attempt on the king. And so he's like, oh, man, that's a big deal. I should tell. So he tells Esther to tell the king. She does. They stop it. The king gets saved. And it's kind of this big deal because, again, you have a Jew saving the Persian king. But all this is sort of secret, and they don't really quite know that yet. So chapter 3. 
opens up and we find our villain. Think like Jafar from Aladdin, right? He's like this evil advisor to the king. That's how I like to think of him as. Um, so he's he's kind of worked his way up in uh, in King Xerxes' staff, and he um, he becomes sort of a big deal, and it definitely definitely goes to his head. He is excited about power. He is excited about honor. In fact, he comes into the town, into the gates at one point, and he um, is being celebrated and whatnot. And he notices that Mordecai does not bow when he walks by. And he gets really, really upset with this. Like, not just like, dang, I wish that he would have bowed. Like, put him in jail or beat him real quick. He's like, no, I'm going to kill him and I'm going to annihilate all of his people. That's going to be my plan because I deserve the honor that um, he should have given me. So he comes up with this, this crazy plan that he is going to get rid of Mordecai and all of the Jewish people throughout the land. And again, remember I said they've assimilated. So they're not necessarily like in tension with the Persians around them, but Haman sort of creates this big deal um, to kind of get people to be angry at um, the Jewish people. And so he's like, okay, here's what I'll do. I will throw dice to decide the date that I'm just going to destroy the entire people group. And so he, like, throws the dice, and it just hap- the date that he's set to do this just happens to be at Passover, which is pretty ironic considering that Passover, if you remember back further into the Old Testament, is when uh, God saves the uh, firstborn out of Israel and the, the whole exodus out of Egypt. Um, and it, so Passover is the festival that sort of commemorates this. So it's sort of funny that the date falls on this holiday, this festival, where they celebrate that God comes through, that God saves the day. So he goes to Xerxes. He's got this all planned out. And he's like, hey, buddy, um, I have this idea these people, certain people, and he's very vague about it. Certain people are not obeying you. You need to know about this. I got your back. I'll take care of it for you. I'll get rid of them. Also, just to make it a little sweeter, I will pay you uh, some money into the treasury because I know you've been losing money in sort of your battle with Greece. And um, it's like the equivalent of like $10 million. $10 million today. But he basically gives this bribe to say like, hey, can I like just do genocide and destroy this people group? Because they're not obeying you, right? That's okay. And the king, of course, being responsible, says no. But oh wait, just kidding. Xerxes is super incompetent. So he's like, sure, that sounds great. Go do it. Do whatever you need. It'll be your special project. Here's my signet ring. Just take care of it. Thanks for getting my back, buddy. And um, it's crazy. So there's this message dispatched to all the land. Um, we're in chapter 3, verse 14, that says that uh, he's going to destroy, kill, and annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. The people are like, what? And, of course, the logical thing for Haman and Xerxes to do is to just go drink. So they do that because that's their natural state. So chapter 4 opens up, and the, the Jews are in mourning, right? They're just told that, like, on this certain day, you guys are going to be wiped out. So, you know, be prepared for that. The rest of the people are sort of like, this is confusing. What did they do? Um, 
And we enter this even more extended period of waiting, waiting on God to do something, to provide, to save these people. Um, Mordecai, being a solid guy, he, um, he, he's, he's mourning this. He's seeking God on it. He decides he's going to send the secret note to Esther um, and ask her to, to intervene, to help out um, any way that she can. And so he sends her the secret note to go pursue the king, ask him to not do this. And she says, no, I can't. I can only go into the king's presence when he summons me. In fact, like that's this whole summoning thing is what got the last king kind of or last queen kicked out. Like it's been 30 days since he's requested to see me and you don't go to the king unless he requests to see you. And um, probably one of the most famous passages from Esther is right here, is in his response back. And it's in chapter 4, in verse 12 of that. And he says, And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at a time like this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You've probably heard that before if you've heard anything from Esther. And I think this passage gets um, like kind of twisted around to be like this, this concept of purpose and like Esther claimed her purpose and God had designed her to do this and all, and all these things. But I actually don't quite see it necessarily working out that way. I feel like this pivotal moment in the story um, yes, has to do with Esther choosing to step up or not. But it, if you look at Mordecai's words about keeping silent, about looking for God, about God's will coming through, whether she chooses to do something or not, is super important. There's so much God happening in this story, and yet he's never mentioned. Again, I wonder if this can feel sort of like your life. Remember, uh, a lot of people say hindsight is twenty twenty, right? So like looking back, it feels so obvious. I wonder if you're in a season where what God is doing feels as obvious to you right now. He says, God will provide another way if you don't do this. But he, he specifically mentioned who knows whether you've come to such a time as this. And that who knows is super important actually, because it references the covenant that God has made with Israel. Who knows? God, right? God is the one that knows. The covenant with Israel that he made previously says, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So is it about looking for purpose for Esther and her destiny? Maybe a little. Is it about looking for God? I think, yeah. I think looking at his promises and looking for him even when he doesn't feel like there's an immediate answer. So Esther says, okay, I'll do it. I mean, I'm going to die anyway, I guess, potentially, so let, let, I'll do it. So she, um, she goes to the king, sort of this tense moment of will he accept her or not. He does. Um, he extends his scepter to her, which says, okay, I can hear you out. And he says, it's okay to enter, and in fact... My queen, what, what's your request? I'll give you up to half of the kingdom. And she asks for the Jews to be saved, right? 
No, she doesn't. She does something kind of crazy, and she asks for a party. So Xerxes says, uh, of course, sure, let's do that. So she says, I would like a party, and um, can you bring Haman? And he's like, okay, yeah, sure, that makes sense. So that happens. Um, Haman is there, and they're having a good time, and the king says, okay, okay, for real, though. I don't think you probably approached me to have a party. What would you like? And she says, okay. Um, Actually, I would like another party. And he's like, okay, we can do that. Two parties, better than one. Let's get this going. And she says, again, I would love it if you would invite Haman. He's like, okay, great. So Haman is like super... uh, even more full of himself than he normally is because he's excited the queen and the king are personally requesting him, his presence at these things. He's having a great time. I think Esther knew Xerxes' love languages, right? She's kind of roasting the prey secretly right now, getting him ready for her big ass. So Haman walks home. And this is so funny. I feel like you can't even make this stuff up. So I'm going to read straight from the text. I'm in uh, chapter 5. This is all happening. And if you're following along with me, I'm starting in verse 9 of that. And it says, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife. To him, And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all of the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Why he needs to tell all the people closest to him all of his accomplishments, like they don't already know, I don't know, but I think that's sort of funny. And then he says, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife and all of their friends said to him, let the gallows, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. So that's like six, seven stories-ish. Um, and in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on them. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. So this is, I can't, I might have misspoke earlier. We're in between the two parties right now. Um, and she said, okay, well, hang him, and then you can, you know, have fun at your party. That feels fine. Um, this idea was, was had pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Here's where it gets even crazier. On that night, so we're in the night between the parties, Haman's off having these gallows made for Mordecai. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and and, and they were read before the king. So the king just happens to have insomnia this one night, and he says, I can't sleep. I know. Here's what I'll do. You read me back the story of me. Sounds sort of familiar. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about those, those guards that had planned to assassinate him um, and who had sought to lay hands on the king. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young man who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, well, who's in the court? So he's hearing off the side, somebody's down there walking around. Now Haman 
had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? You see where this is going. So Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought with the, uh, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, all right, well, that's a good idea. We'll do that. Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Sort of ironic, right? Like crazy ironic. So Haman super begrudgingly does this, because he has to follow the king's um, orders. So he does this like crazy display of honor he's forced to of Mordecai, which, I mean, again, to me, just has God written all over it. And then um, I just think it's so funny. So he does that. He goes home. He's like, crap, that happened. I'm so angry. I'm going to get that guy. I don't know how you get him even more than still planning to kill him and annihilate all of his people, but he's going to get that guy. He goes to the second party. So they're at the second party. This is the beginning of chapter 7. They're drinking again. They're having a good time. The king says, okay, Esther, what's your request? And that's when she chooses her moment. She reveals to the king for the first time that she is a Jew. And she pleads with him to save the people, to overthrow this uh, edict. And the king's first response is, who did this? Like, who said that this was okay? He's such a... I'm sure he was like a great leader, but he's such an idiot. And um, she says, of course, wanting, you know, being an intelligent woman, rational, she doesn't say, "Uh, you did, you okayed this. She says, well, Haman, Haman's the one that came to you and and had this idea. And so the king uh, gets kind of angry or whatever. And so he leaves the room and Haman is desperate at this point, right? The king is angry with him. He doesn't know what to do. He's about to lose all of his credibility and honor and all those things that he worships so much. And he's he starts begging Esther for his life. Like, please, please, please tell the king. Like, spare me, etc. The king walks back in. He sees Haman begging Esther, but he doesn't realize that he's actually begging Esther to save his life. He thinks he's taking advantage of Esther and molesting her. And so the king is like, that's it. I'm going to kill you right now. Like, no grace. You're done. Um, So he's, like, really, really angry. The king's, uh, the eunuchs and guards kind of step up and say, hey, um, just, like, just so you know, there's, like, a giant um, gallows that just got built right over there if you want to use it. The king's like, yeah, great. I will use that. It paled Haman. And I just think that this is so funny because, Haman actually, like, he's despicable, right? But he gets killed for, like, the one thing that he didn't actually do. I just think is kind of coincidental, kind of funny. 
Um, and so he gets impaled on this, this giant gallows that he himself built to punish somebody else. The story is crazy, and um, it, it, it continues to go on from there. I think there's so much to learn from Haman, because Haman gets so wrapped up in what he wanted and what he's looking for. He gets so wrapped up in honor and respect and the pleasure of being like exclusively invited to these parties and um, in his control, right? Makes me think in my own life too of what have I, what have you maybe got too wrapped up in in your life right now? Do you ever lose control to the thing that you want most to control? Do you ever miss God? Maybe you stop looking for him or you just can't see him because you're too busy trying to stay in control? Now, I'm going to let you read the rest of the story on your own. There's, there's more chapters, a few more chapters. Um, I'll let you see how it gets turned out. But uh, things turn out. But what they they, uh, they made that edict irreversible. Why I'm not sure. And so Xerxes actually doesn't have the power to overturn that command. So they have to try to figure out another way to save the Jews. Read it. Go home. Read it. It's a good story. I'll leave you a little bit on that cliffhanger. Um. But that idea of control, I think I can relate to that a ton. A lot of the times in my life where I feel like, gosh, I just don't see what God is doing. And not every time, but a lot of times when I just can't see God, it's because I'm just, I don't want to give up control to him. I can't necessarily look beyond my own plans or my own desires. Or if, if I do that, for me at least, it takes a long stretch of time where I feel like I slowly break down and give up more and more to him, surrender more and more. And then I can, I can see him. And it may not be answers, but I can see him. See, the book of Esther is written like it's scripted. It's, it's coincidence after coincidence after coincidence here and there and there. And God is in the details. His name is not mentioned, but he's in there all over the place. I don't believe that all of those things actually were coincidences. That just happened to happen. See, God's not a narrator in our lives. He's not telling us the play-by-play of what's happening. That's not the narrator. He's the author. God's active. God is writing your story. God has the power to edit. I'm so glad even though I, I want God to be a narrator and tell me exactly what's going on so that I know and I can stay in control, I'm so glad he's not. I'm so glad that God is an author that has the power to edit and change the story of my life and in the people around me. Can you see God working in your story, like over your life, but even just right now? Will you look for him in what you're going through? right now. See, God's not mentioned in Esther at all, but there's blaring truths about him that are set up. And we can go ahead and throw those up on the screen. 
in, as you read through it, there's these truths about God. There's things that we learn about who God is and about his character, despite his absence, despite him not being mentioned. First of all, we learn God's not absent, that he's a saving God. Look at what he did with with the Jewish people over and over again. We learn it's so obvious that God has plans, that nothing happens aimlessly or that he just didn't know about or he has to like quick adjust for. God is perfect timing. He's never late. Gosh, it, it doesn't necessarily feel that way to me all the time, especially when there's pain or hurt involved that seems unnecessary. But God is, God is perfect timing. I mean, that insomnia, right? Like the gallows, the, the banquets, it's all perfect. Even, even the, the proclaimed date of the annihilation happening over Passover. So the Jews are remembering him. God is stronger than human plans. That's all over the place. He's stronger than Haman's evil or the control that Haman is or Xerxes himself is even able to have. God is a redeeming God. He still uses Esther, even though she hesitates, even though she's afraid. He redeems Mordecai. God does miracles. I mean, that just feels obvious. Esther being chosen in the first place out of all of the women in the kingdom, with the Jews getting saved, the crazy stuff that was going on between Haman and Mordecai. I think it's really clear that God is always thinking of us both individually and the kingdom simultaneously, right? We see that in saying, in in Mordecai's um, encouragement to Esther of saying, you know, you have a choice here, but don't think that God's not going to come through. God gives us the personal choices that we can have, but his greater will will still be done. I think that we see that God can reverse destinies. I mean, everyone in this story, for good or bad, their destiny gets reversed in a lot of ways. And then ultimately, as we look towards the New Testament and further down the line in the coming of Jesus, and we talk about reversal of destinies. These are the truths about God in the book of Esther. What is true about God, whether his name is mentioned or not. Right? Whether he is declared or whether he's quiet. Whether it's light that we're experiencing or darkness. Whether in want or in plenty. Whether in despair or in hope, in exile or in unity. These are true about God. Whether we see them or feel them, they're still true. I'm curious for you right now where you sit on December 4th, three more days to class is uh, being done, finals approaching, holidays approaching, work getting stressful. I'm sure there's people that are in pain and hurting in your life, if not you yourself. Which of these truths do you need to remember in your life right now? Is there one that sticks out? Whether it feels true or not, is there one you need to remember? This is true of God and hold on to that. See, Esther is a good and encouraging and entertaining story on its own, but Esther is just, it doesn't stand alone, right? Esther's in a portion of the Bible where the Israelites are in exile. 
But Esther is placed in an Advent portion of the Bible too. See, Advent means, literally means it's a coming into place, view, or being, an arrival. The story of God and his creation, of his people, and his care for his kingdom has been established at this point in the narrative. The tension is built, right? The Jews are deep in the consequences of their rebellion against God and the ways that he's laid out for them to live. The Jews are captured and they're enslaved. And they can't seem to find God as a people right now. They're in exile. They're looking to be rescued, to be saved, brought back into right relationship with the Lord once again. They're looking for an arrival, a coming of God into place, into view, into being, in a very real, very physical way. The coming of a foretold Messiah, a king, who will literally embody all of those truths and save them from exile. This is the, this is the passion and this is the desperation behind the Advent season and the Christmas season, right? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. Come, God, be with us and ransom captive Israel. Israel. That's how the song goes that we sing. So are you looking for the Messiah too in this Advent season? Are you looking? God's active. He's moving events. He's tying things up. He's writing. He's editing. Are you looking for him? Will you continually look for God? Or are you going to continually look for um, maybe fun? Like Xerxes, always sort of hiding behind pleasure and entertainment. Are you continually looking for purpose? Esther, where she's just stuck in that decision of like, what am I supposed to do? What is the right choice? I'm looking for purpose in my life. Are you continually looking for validation, right? Like Haman is, where he's just, he gets so desperate for it that he's manipulating everybody else around him to give him respect. Are you continually looking for vengeance, maybe? Feels like a strong word, but I think we do it. We're looking for, we're looking and we're burning for fairness, Maybe we're holding on to like how we're the victim or how things aren't your fault. Or maybe you're looking right now for no more problems. Kind of like the Jews were looking for this conquering king and totally missed the Messiah in the meantime. Or will you be Mordecai and continually look for God in your life? Uh, Will you pray with me?